The Linux Reality Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Media, spreading the knowledge of innovators through its books, online services, magazines, and conferences. Visit them today at O'Reilly.com. Everybody, welcome back to Linux Reality. This is episode 93. I'm your host, Chess Griffin. And uh, in this episode, we've got a real treat. It's an interview, and it's an interview with Nathan Lowell. He is the author of the books I mentioned in a, in a previous episode. Uh, the books are Quarter Share, Half Share, Full Share, and South Coast. And uh, it's a really great interview. We talk about the books. We talk about his writing um, uh, and all kinds of cool uh, Linuxy and tech things as well, because it does turn out that he is a a Linux user. So there's some really cool stuff in here and I'm just a huge fan of his work and uh, just, uh, you know, really appreciate him taking the time uh, to speak with me and I think you'll enjoy this. So let's get right to it. Okay. Well, tonight I'm speaking with author Nathan Lowell. Uh, Nathan. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I guess you never thought that your writing would get you uh, featured on a Linux podcast, huh? <laughs> no, that's that's a fact. I, yeah. That was not one of one of the things I ever considered. <laughs> well, uh, and for people who are listening, uh, just to let folks know, there are some some techie and Linux related subjects we'll get to in a few minutes. But uh, I'd really like to start off with with you and your books. Um, because I just I really love your books and I, I look forward to talking about them. But can you tell me a little bit about yourself first? All righty. Uh, well, I am a part-time college professor and a full-time technologies coordinator. My my first day job is as technologies coordinator for the National Center on Sensory and Severe Disabilities at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado. And what I'm responsible for there is maintaining the hardware, software, and wetware necessary for the National Center to address its missions in a rational and logical way. So I do server maintenance, I do web pages, I do scripting, I do database, I do instructional design, I do graphic design, I do whatever is needed for the National Center to have a national presence in a variety of different media, not just web, but uh, next week, this week, in fact, on Wednesday, I'm going to Orlando for an, uh, an assistive technology and disabilities conference and giving a presentation there. My, that was my first day job. My second day job is as adjunct faculty. I'm, I have a PhD in educational technology, and I teach at Moorhead State in Kentucky. Now, I live in Colorado, and I teach in Kentucky, but since I teach online, that doesn't matter. <laughs> and in my spare time, I write books. <laughs> I was going to say, with, with, all of those, uh, with all those day jobs, I'm surprised you have time to write books and uh, uh, write four in one year. <laughs> yeah, four in one year was a little crazed, but um, my goal was six this year, so we'll see. 
you know, as an author, uh, so far you've written four books that, that have been recorded and broadcast uh, as a patio book, which uh, I guess is the best way to describe it is essentially an audio book released in episodes, uh, maybe weekly or something. But uh, for those listeners that are not familiar with your, with your work and your books, can you tell me a little bit about the books, the characters, uh, settings, and storylines? Uh, well, let's talk about patio books first. Uh, patio books is a melding of an old idea in literature, which is serialized fiction. It goes back to Dickens, Thackeray, um, the old days when they used to get paid by the word and an episode would come out in each new journal or a new chapter would come out. Take that old idea and bring it forward into podcast which is an audio that's delivered via RSS on some kind of schedule, like yours. So take this episodic fiction, record it as an audio book, and put it on an RSS feed, and you have a patio book. And that's where the idea for patio books came from. Now, my books, specifically, uh, there's three and one. It's sometimes easier to talk about the Share Trilogy and then the other book. The first three are quarter share, half share, full share. And those correspond to pay grades in this universe for the people who are engaged in interstellar trade. The lead character is Ishmael Horatio Huang. And in typical old-school science fiction manner, he is thrust into the universe at the tender young age and forced to look out for himself in a strange and sometimes confusing world. What I was striving for, and there's some question as to whether or not I've actually done it, but what I was striving for was the idea of you know, in Star Trek, there's the red-shirted crewman? <laughs> yes. I always wanted to know what he did before he got tapped to go on the away team and was killed. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to think about, well, you know, here's a science fiction universe. What, what do people do who aren't the captains of the ships and who aren't the displaced kings and who aren't the, you know, the rich industrialist and who aren't anybody, really? What do they do? And can I make a story about them? And so this is the story of nobody. And his name is Ishmael Horatio Wong, and he signs on to be a mess hand on an interstellar freighter. And the stories that come from the adventures that he has trying to turn a profit and stay alive. Now, staying alive isn't really a big challenge. That's one of the one of the complaints that I get a lot about the books is that he doesn't ever seem to be threatened. There doesn't seem to be any significant conflict. But if you think about it, how many people really are? Well, and I think that there, I think that there is lots of conflict, but it's very it's very subtle conflict, and and well, and there's a yeah. lot of interesting character development that I really enjoy. Thanks. I I I think it works. I think it works pretty well as 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 a piece. Um, there's, there's a certain set of tropes that are generally expected of science fiction. You've got to have some sort of very outrageous technology, or you have to have some bug-eyed monster, or you have to have you know, some threatening of humanity in order for it to be science fiction. But 
none of those are in any of my books. So it's kind of it's kind of it, it runs counter to a lot of what people expect from science fiction. Now, South Coast is set in the same universe as the Share books, but um, is, is it my understanding that the South Coast story actually takes place just a little bit before Quarter Share? Yeah, the the dates actually will tell you where it is in time. The date the date timeline is consistent. Um, which was awkward because I had to re-record the first three episodes when I realized it was off by ten years. <laughs> uh, South Coast is my National Novel Writing Month effort. I wrote the first three books in a single, uh, not sitting, but in, in a single run. That is, I wrote one and then wrote the next one and then wrote the next one. I run them bang, 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 run right after another. And they were largely completed in first draft within 90 days, back in the beginning of the year. They started in January of 2007 uh, with quarter share and then finished full share. In its, in its original form, I finished full share in May. And then I was recording quarter share while I was writing half share I was recording full share while I was I was recording half share while I was writing full share. It was confusing for me because I never knew where the <laughs> heck I was. But uh, the three books took um, very little in terms of what most people think of in terms of time it takes to write a novel. The three books took almost no time at all to write and only slightly more to record. There, there are several schools of recording. This one is the straight read school. school. <laughs> um, I just read it. Uh, I don't have any sound effects. I do have music. I've got an intro and an outro, and the music was picked for the book. Uh, the music for the first three are sea shanties. They're, they're reels and jigs uh, and slip jigs that would have been common on clipper ships in the 1860s mm -hmm. or around the docks or on the ships. And there's a lot of the clipper ship mythos built into this whole idea because the subtitle, the, the book, the universe, is called The Golden Age of the Solar Clipper. And the ships all have the same technology that allow them to sail on the solar wind out to the edge of the universe and then fold space to create a wormhole and then sail in to the new system on the other side. So the whole basic premise of the commercial enterprise that goes on here is based on this notion of the solar clipper, which is a real long time to get out to the edge, no time at all to transition between, and another long time to get back in. And so what happens on board ship during these long periods while being underway, and how that affects the people and the relationships that are stuck out there in the deep dark for months on end, and what happens when they hit port for four or five days, and it just goes from there. South Coast, to go back to your original question, it will intersect the, the sequel to South Coast, Cape Grace, tentatively named, it's not even written yet, but uh, tentatively it's named Cape Grace. Cape Grace will intersect with Half Share. In Half Share, a character came to the ship, um, a woman named Sarah Krug, who is a South Coast shaman. 
Now, the shamanism is the only reference to religion in all of the books so far, and the only religion that I've referenced. I'm not sure where that's going to go in terms of future, but the idea of the shaman comes from a coastal fishing community culture which is the setting for South Coast. A lot of people were interested in Sarah Krug and her South Coast shaman and her belief system and the artifacts that went along with it that followed her onto the ship. And so when National Novel Writing Month came around in November, I wanted to write a little bit of the backstory of where does this South Coast shaman mythos come from. And so I picked that as the thing I could write about in November because I already had other books that were in process that, that wouldn't have been eligible. So South Coast Shaman grew out of my wanting to do something in November and to fill in this backstory about where does South Coast Shaman come from, what is what does it mean, and and what led to Sarah Krug fleeing her home and taking refuge on board the Lois McKendrick. Well, and it's, and it's funny because actually after listening to South Coast, um, I more than ever want to see a real Welkie one of these days. <laughs> it's just, uh, I, <laughs> I have no idea if such a thing really exists, but they, they sound like just amazing works of art. The, uh, the, the Welkie concept is actually based on the Zuni Native American Zuni Indian fetish. Okay. So if you if you think of the Native Americans have these, and particularly the Zunis are 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 noted for stone carvings with inlaid heart lines of uh, typically uh, the yeah I've just blanked out. There's a blue stone. Uh, turquoise. Thank you. Turquoise. Uh, turquoise. I was about to say lapis, but <laughs> no, it's turquoise. Uh, typically, it's a it's a black stone with a turquoise heart line. Okay. And if you can Google them and see them, there there's a whole there's a whole mythos surrounding which animals have which powers and which animals have you know Im imbue what spirits onto the the carrier. So the idea of the Welkie came from this notion of the, the Native American animal fetish, the, the Zuni fetishes. Well, you know, what I think is just really neat about the books, in, you know, collectively, is it seems like there's a lot of very interesting um, references or inspirations, like, the, what, like what you were just speaking about, you know, for example, with the, with the Native American artwork but even with the characters and the and you know the the idea of the economic empires and battles whether it's on a small scale with the you know in the case of a of the flea market or or a, or a large corporation in the case of south coast i find that that sort of combination of science fiction economics trade sailing just really interesting and, and compelling it's a fantastic universe and it, you know, it reminds me a little bit about uh, of a of an old role-playing uh, role game I used to play called Traveler. And in fact, I, I even think at one point on your site, it also well, it had reminded me of a book I read in college. I was an English major, and it was two years before the Mass. And I think you actually even referenced that on on your website at one point. 
I just find all of this this mix really, really interesting and compelling. What are some of the the influences and inspirations, whether it's other science fiction writers or other works that that led you to create these books? Uh, actually, Traveler was one of them. Okay. <laughs> uh, I used to play I used to play Traveler not very well, but I I was at least exposed to the game. <laughs> me neither. Uh, and I, it was it was always it was always fascinating to me that. Uh, the, the whole concept of, of Traveler as a role-playing game, the idea of economics as a, a conflict menu. Usually we think of, of warfare, but business is economic warfare, so why not? And the idea that we should look at that as, as a viable alternative from, as a plot device always always struck me as being underrepresented now there is a there is a set of um, books that use uh, this idea of trade the Liadin universe um, with by Lee and Miller mm -hmm. um, plan B agent of change there's six or eight of them uh, those books are based on the notion of the trade guild and how the the traders, how how they organize their trade around the trade guild. So that universe was definitely an influence on my my choosing trade in, instead of going with something more hardcore military sci-fi. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Hornblower saga, the 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 seafaring tale, or you know, definitely has some influence the the very first the very first paragraph of the very first book talks about how if his par if Ishmael's parents had known what he was going to do with his life they might have picked a different name Richard Henry Dana mm -hmm. who was the author of 2 years before the mass mm -hmm. uh so that whole that whole idea of what it was like in the clipper ship days the whole idea of you know, it wouldn't be too far off to think of these as being very redundant, uh, not redundant, uh, very reminiscent of mm -hmm. clippers, of the clipper ships, of the being weeks at, months at sea, and, and these guys are at sea for weeks. Now, the other part of that is that I spent five years in the Coast Guard. I actually was on board ship. I know what it's like to go out and stay out and how important things like coffee and food are <laughs> and what the the whole notion of the watch standing carousel where you can live with people and never see them uh, live within 20 feet of somebody and never see them because they're on the other watch cycle and how that affects what you think about and what you think about them and how you relate to them and the whole the whole notion of of the ship as its own entity and Lois McKendrick is definitely a character in all three of the books so you know there's there's a lot of influences a lot of them from other science fiction that I've read uh, oh um Ellie Modisette's uh, series on chaos. Mm -hmm. Every book in the chaos 
series has some tradesman who has something, whether he's an iron worker or a woodworker or a, a baker or whatever. And each of those books has some, well, it has a good deal of conflict and, and warfare and magic and all the rest of it. It also has this very engaging idea that simple things can be as engaging as the most complex and so I wanted to play with that as well. So Ishmael Horatio Wong starts out making coffee, and then he goes to engineering and works works in sludge. And then only in the third book does he manage to do something kind of science fiction and get up on the bridge and actually look out the window. Uh, so it was all of those influences all combined to kind of erupt last January, and they just keep pouring out. I also really enjoy how, and, and maybe this is something that you will do in the future, so you know, I don't know, but at least so far, uh, all of the books have been, well, there have been no aliens or monsters or anything like that. It's all, it's all you know, just, just regular people. Granted, they live in the future and, and, and in a different universe, literally, uh, but it's just, it's very, it's very real, and, and you can, you know, as, as a modern-day listener, you can relate. It, it reminds me a little bit, although the storylines are not really the same of, of the TV show Firefly, which, which you know, didn't, didn't have any aliens or anything like that either. I really like that kind of science fiction, and it really is just fantastic work. Thanks. I'm I'm a big fan of Firefly too, and it, that that show should have gone somewhere. Darn it! But uh, <laughs> the uh, there's there was a there's a a certain amount of that you know that Joss Whedon idea that we really do need to think about what we think about technology. I mean, the Western in space that was Firefly, it makes a whole lot of sense to have horses and not cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a, there was a lot of there was a lot of internal logic and and I tried to come up with the same level of internal logic in terms of how the economy was arranged how uh, what companies did how the companies relate there has to be some sort of economic viability in terms of growing food on one planet and trading food from one planet for raw materials and finished goods from another and you know that whole internal consistency very very traveler like uh, still needs to have some some grounding in yeah this has to work now, and i don't i don't plan on having any aliens because we've got plenty of aliens <laughs> walking around on two legs to keep me in in subject matter for a long long time i think mhm um, well it seems that that uh, certainly not every uh, writer does this, but I think sometimes the aliens are, are almost a device or something, um, you know, as a way to create conflict or something. It seems to me harder to do what you're doing, which is to create this interesting character development and conflict within within just regular people. And that was, you know, thank you. And that was, that really is my goal is to have this be what what. A really speculative fiction rather than science fiction, because it really does speculate not about what the science is, but what the people are. And that was that was you know really my underlying. If if I if I could say I had an underlying you know some sort of highfalutin overriding principle of what I was trying to do, blah blah blah. <laughs> uh, the reality is I just wanted to tell a good story and. 
I wrote the story that I thought I might like to listen to, and then I recorded it and I put it on audio books. And when I first did it, I thought, you know, if I get 200 listeners, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> um, I've got more than 200 listeners. <laughs> uh, well, I, I get I get a lot of email. <laughs> I'm sure, based on the uh, where the books are on the charts and everything. I mean, I, I do keep tabs on those because it helps me find new works. That's how I that's how I found your works. I mean, I've been listening to patio books for a long time now, and certainly listened to Sigler and J.C. Hutchins and uh, Merle Lafferty, who who actually lives in my hometown, and uh, uh, many other authors. Um, and that's how I found your books was through the charts, and your, your books are still on there. <laughs> my books are still on there. Yeah, I. Uh, I can't. I don't even. I don't even know how or why. I know how hard uh, Scott and JC and Murr and uh, you know PG Holyfield and uh, Mark Yashimenko Nemkov. Yep. <laughs> I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> I'm. I'm sorry, Mark. I'm sorry. Uh, Yashimoto Nemkov, there we go. If I don't think about it, I'm all right. I mean, I know how hard these people work to yeah. create create what they create and to do what they do. Uh, Christi, uh, Christiana Ellis, how mm -hmm. hard she works. And always working all the time to create that connection with the fan, to create the the stellar work that they do, to create the outstanding stuff that they keep putting out. And I don't do any of that. I just write my little stories and I put them on digital and I post them to patio books. I, I don't even have my own podcast. <laughs> it's the only place they get posted is on patio books. Uh, I only recently put up the web page mm -hmm. and uh, that was just because it, it was there was material that I wanted the fans to be able to have but I didn't want to include in the the patio book itself, the the goal is to keep the patio book the patio book, so that people who only care about the listening experience only have to deal with the listening experience, and they can get a, a pretty good story out of patio books. But then, if they go to www.durandis.org/golden, they can ding get the <laughs> link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. They can they can get there's more information there. There's the 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 background information. I've written parts of the Spacer's Handbook. I've written uh, maps. I've drawn deck plans for the ships. The, the there's you know the kind of the kind of geeky stuff that people mm -hmm. who who want to go beyond just listening to the story kind of like to have, and which I actually had to put together in order to keep my universe consistent. I just threw it up on the website, and the next thing you know, I've got I've got a listserv. I've got people who are who are now competing to have a ship named after them, and they're they're drawing art for me, and I'm just I'm just flabbergasted. You know, I, I still can't uh, you know I still can't imagine how you were able to write these four books in one year, especially given your job that you you know touched on a few minutes ago in in technology and. And that actually brings me to, to something I did want to ask you about. And, and you kind of already touched on it, but uh, it seems that a lot of science fiction fans and writers also have, a, have an interest in technology. They, they, there's a lot of overlap there. Not, not universal, but, but you know, there's a lot of overlap there. It sounds like you have a background in, in technology and, uh, and 
I don't know if you have a love for technology. Maybe at the end of the day, you you want to get a far as far away from it as you can. But um, but you know, do you have an interest in technology given your job and your background and everything? Um, well, let's see. I started. Okay, I'll give you this oh, the standard spiel. I built my first computer as a junior high school science fair project about forty three years ago now. Wow. I've I've been in computers almost longer than Bill Gates has been alive. <laughs> He's a billionaire and I'm bitter. <laughs> the reality he, is that I've spent most of my adult life working in and around uh, information technology. I started out as a data entry clerk back when it was data processing. I became a programmer, systems analyst, programmer analyst, database administrator, database analyst. Um, I've worked on virtually every mini and mainframe computer in commercial production in North America except for the Cray. <laughs> I've worked in almost every commercial uh, programming language except Fortran. Uh, and I, I do know Fortran. I just never worked in it. Um, I worked I worked my, in 25 years in information systems. I went from data entry clerk to vice president. I hold a bachelor's degree in business administration, a master's degree in educational technology, and my PhD is in educational technology with emphasis in interactive, uh, in interactive instruction and uh, online uh, distance education. So to say my day job is, is managing servers, mm -hmm. to say that I have some interest in technology would be a bit of an understatement. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> and based on all of this knowledge and experience and education, what is your preferred operating system? Let's get right Linux. to it. There Linux, you go. Of <laughs> Linux. It's, it's funny for those people who, who who don't know. There's obviously a little backstory here. Uh, I mentioned Nathan's books as I, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago in a in a previous episode, and Nathan was kind enough to jump on the forums and, and say hi, which was just awesome. It was very cool to see. I think I had, um, I think Bill Rossi did that too after I mentioned his book a, a while ago. Because I'm, a, as I said, a huge fan of these patio books, but. You mentioned in the forums there that you do uh, use Linux as well. Yeah, it's a about because I work for the National Center, and because whenever you're dealing with a special education, money is always tight. There's never enough money to do the, the kinds of things that you'd want to do. So any every dollar that I don't spend on software. Every dollar that I don't have to spend on hardware is a dollar that we can spend on services for kids. It's a dollar that we can spend for promoting better education for teachers. So when the National Center was formed in 2001, I made a commitment to Linux for our servers. And in 2002, I said, well, this is silly. I'm, I'm not going to buy software for desktops. And so I started using Linux for my desktops. And when I shifted over to working on laptops, everybody knows how much fun putting Linux on a laptop is. <laughs> I went to uh, Linux on a laptop. So right now, my main working machine is actually uh, an HP 
port, uh, portable. Uh, it's uh, one of the 64-bit HPs, mm -hmm. Pavilion, and it's running Fedora Core. It's desperately in need of an upgrade, but I, I'm a, I've got so much going on, I, I don't dare take the time to run the upgrade. <laughs> um, and I do all of my word processing uh, on that laptop. It's it's mine. It doesn't belong to the state, so it's one of those one of those issues you have to deal with when you're an employee of a state institution is that you you don't use their equipment for personal gain. So this is my personal machine, <laughs> and it runs um, Fedora Core, and I use Open Office for my writing. I use uh, Bluefish for my web work. I use um, Thunderbird, Firefox. I, you know, I don't, I don't need to list this mm -hmm. stuff off. I do all my all my audio editing in Audacity. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I do, do all my audio. I do all my audio editing in Audacity. I was working. I was doing my recording. Um, yes, all of my recording up till now has been done on an uh, on iRiver, IFP seven ninety nine. So I had to get the Linux drivers for that so that I could mount that and actually get the the MP threes off. That was that was one of the more interesting technical challenges that I've had to face, other than getting wireless running, which is everybody's always everybody's favorite trick. Uh, but yeah, I I can't you know I can't see spending money for stuff that doesn't work as well as what I can get from the Linux community. So yes, I'm not the typical user. Yes, I can I, if I have <laughs> to get in the guts and mess with it, I can get in the guts and mess with it. But you know the last couple years the first the first time I put Linux on a laptop it was a nightmare and the last time I put Linux on a laptop I didn't really even notice so we've come a long way in a very short time yeah it, it really has come a long way and and before I continue on the Linux thing I just have to say I'm really amazed that you recorded those books on on an iRiver because it just sounds amazing I have an iRiver and I recorded the first I don't know how many Twenty or thirty shows um, of this podcast on that, and I just—I I think I'm a terrible sound engineer and recorder because your your recordings sound great, and my my episodes don't. Right. <laughs> the the, uh, the seven ninety nine, I had to use an external microphone on it. The first book, Quarter Share, which actually sounds as good as any of them, I I made several serious mistakes when I recorded it. I recorded it on in my car, for one thing, I printed it out episode by episode and recorded it in my car. It was uh, the only place I could find it was quiet enough to be able to do it. And I did it as a an anniversary present for my wife. She didn't know I was writing the book, or, well, she did, but she didn't say tell me she knew. And then she didn't know I was recording it. And so I gave her the URL for its publication for our anniversary. And that was why that how that book and another little piece of the backstory. But when I was recording it, I was recording it in a on a twenty dollar Radio Shack headset plugged into this iRiver in my car, and I had the MP3 sample rate wasn't high enough, not the mm -hmm. sample rate, the bit rate mm -hmm. was turned down. The the iRiver will go up to three ninety two, but I was down around ninety six, so I wasn't recording at a very high fidelity. But in spite of that, Audacity managed to clean it up and, and let me turn out a, a pretty decent-sounding output file when all was said and done. Uh, 
And it's amazing what a little lead-in music and a little outro music will do for you in terms of covering a multitude of sins. But, you know, speaking of the of the intro music and the outro music, I know, I, I think, do you get all of your music from the Internet Archive? Is that right? I have so far, yeah. Yeah, I, I like I like the Internet Archive. There's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff there. There's the the you can search there for open source, mm-hmm. so that when you when you see it, you can you know what license you you've got. Mm-hmm. The downside is that it's almost impossible to find anybody who's posted stuff there. I, I've been trying to track down James Curran, who's I took uh, two of his pieces, and I've been trying to track him down because uh, there's there's some talk about turning these books into real audiobooks, single-file audiobooks, mm-hmm. and making those available for sale through patio books to help defray some of the costs. Now, the problem is that those music pieces are licensed non-commercial. Mm-hmm. So I'm perfectly within my license, within the license of that music, to use it as intro and outro as long as I give the books away. But as soon as we start charging for them, now I'm in violation of the license. I've been trying to get a hold of James Curran, but I can't find him. I can't find anybody who knows him. And the tag for the XML file for the for the Internet Archive for the person who uploaded it doesn't respond. So there's some upside and downside. The upside is that it's it's an amazingly rich resource, and you can search by open source so that mm-hmm. you can find you can find stuff that's that for me where I need it to be able to give it away. It's it's easy to find. So I, yeah, I like it a lot. There's there's other resources, uh, Pod uh, Podsafe, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of others. But yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, in fact, I know so far all all of my music has come from the Internet Archive. Well, you know that issue about about licensing and everything actually brings me to to something I really wanted to ask you, and this is something that has something has, that has uh, interested me for quite some time with you know listening to these patio books uh in in sort of open source land as you know a lot of users and programmers and others cite you know a lot of their reasoning for using linux or bsd or other free and open source software is that is that freedom you know the the freedom of the code uh certainly some people like the the free as in beer you know no cost part as well but um, at least for me, I think the freedom of the code is more important. But what I think is interesting is that you and other Patio Books authors and, and, and others have, have created art, have created content, and have, have essentially given away for free at no cost, you know, in a, in a manner very similar to open source programmers. Um, obviously, I, I, you know, as far as I understand, it, you retain copyright over your work, but but you're you know giving it away without any without payment. What just kind of maybe talk a little bit about your thinking behind doing it, you know, releasing your books for free, and and you know, uh, what are maybe some of the advantages and and you know the the, the pros and cons of of doing it that way. Well, the first is that there is no way, following traditional models of publication, that in a single year, I could have written and published four books. We'll start with that one. Um, I have an audience. I have fans. This time, what, what's what's today? The twenty-sixth. Yeah, this time last year, nobody knew me. This year, I have fans. This year, I have a following. This year, um, I have been invited to submit a manuscript to a closed publishing house. 
that would not have happened had I not taken the road the road that I did. And the reality is that in speculative fiction, there's not a lot of people who make a lot of money to begin with. You know, if I do get a book deal, I I have I, I'm not going to be able to retire on a book. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a lot of money. So the the objective for me, as I said originally, the objective for me was to see if I could do it and put up a patio book and see if I could get 200 listeners, and the whole thing just snowballed beyond that. But from I'm I'm being forced to think about the publication aspect now and what is it going to mean to turn pro. Do, do, is there going to come a day when I'll be able to say my day job is writing and, and oh yeah, I teach a course in Kentucky on the side. And the reality is I speak, even though I am publishing the audio, the main rights, the print rights, are still not given away. Mm -hmm. Only the audio rights. The story is there and it's mine. The audio rights are the only ones that are in any kind of exposure mode. We have print rights, we have screen rights, we have, um, I don't know what else might come of it, uh, TV rights that still are not, that are still available, they're still open. So while I am in one sense giving the work away, uh, Scott Sigler has proven and is about to prove again that giving it away is the best way to sell it. Because mm -hmm. he's he's got what one movie deal? He's he's working on his third book deal. Uh, his new book, Infected, is coming out on April first, and he would not be he would not be able to. I don't believe. I, it's, it's of course it's all speculation, but there's. This is such a competitive marketplace. It is such a competitive business. It, it's it's such a difficult field to break into that I really have, and we I think we all believe all of the patio books authors believe that this is the that the way to create a market for our work is to create the market for our work mm -hmm. and worry about how we get paid for it later. And it seems to be working. I think I've heard even Scott Sigler talk about some of the reaction he's received from uh, established people in the industry. <laughs> and it, you know, uh, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I mean, these are my words. But he, he seemed to indicate that he that he's gotten some flack for it, oh, um, yeah. which is you know very unfortunate. But but I agree with you completely. I mean, I. Have you know? I mean, I bought the two Scott Sigler books that are out. If J.C. Hutchins gets his books out, I'll buy those. If if yours get published, I'm going to buy those. I mean, I'm a book nut. I like having I like having a printed book in front of me. Um, and clearly, I think that this idea works. But I would imagine that there's a lot of people that don't like it. <laughs> well, I, I suspect there is, but there's also there's also a certain number of interesting people who are in what we would think of as mainstream media 
who are now taking advantage and beginning to recognize that outlets like Podio Books and the the private podcast novel are actually kind of interesting places to go mining for new properties because they come complete with established audiences. You have stories that are completed. You're not getting uh, a sample chapter and an outline. For the most part, these are works that are complete. Mm -hmm. They are maybe not works that you want to use in their current form. Maybe we can work with the author to edit them. But in terms of trying to wade through a slush pile or listen to a patio book, the people, I think it's pretty well established that people like Gwen Gates up at Dragon Moon Press is spending a certain amount of time mining patio books for new properties. Uh, Junkyard, I suspect, is also listening. There's probably half a dozen others of the small press people who are out there poking around and listening and seeing what they can find. Um, speaking of Phil Rossi, he got a movie deal. Did he really? I didn't know that. I think it was wow. Phil. Well, um, Phil Rossi. Uh, he was uh, the one, he wrote Crescent. He wrote Crescent, but didn't he get? Yeah, uh, Phil Rossi got wasn't no. It's uh, I'm confusing him with the monologues, failed city monologues. Oh yes, I know who you're talking about. I'm drawing a blank on that as well. Rick, uh, Matt Wallace. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Matt Wallace, <laughs> Matt Wallace, Rick Springer. Uh, Matt Wallace is I his his work got the attention of. Um, movie producer in Australia and he's got at least one if not two That's amazing. deals out of that so the idea that the world is changing people are catching on yeah there's a lot of old school people who think that this is totally bogus there's a lot of people who think that this is this is a pointless and fruitless exercise there are there are people who who have the evidence in front of them who reject it as being unfortunate or not credible. Uh, it, it's one of the things that, that I need to deal with in the coming year when I p start putting out new stuff. I have no idea how many subscribers I have. And, you know, Scott, I say that and Scott, I can, Scott Sigler is over in San Francisco right now screaming, don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> but I have, no, I have no idea how many people subscribe to my books. I know how many people subscribe through Patio books, but I also released it to iTunes, and I have no idea how many people may have downloaded it from iTunes. Oh, that's I have no idea. I have no idea how many people may have got it from Podcast Pickle. I don't. I just don't know. All I know is that I have some number of people who who have subscribed. I know that my books stay near the top of the list in terms of the daily counts and the monthly counts and the number of people who have given me very high ratings, have seen to it that at least two of my books stay in the, the highest rated, and the third book just fell onto the most rated list as well. So, you know, the, there's a lot, there's enough people there who are are willing to come back to the site and say, yes, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to check the box and I'm going to throw a couple of bucks and, and 
that's all well and good and it works for this, but in terms of trying to sell the book to a publisher, in terms of trying to sell the work to a publisher as an established audience, I'm in a terrible position to try to make that case because, frankly, I have no idea how many people there are. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's where Signaler and Hutchins and, and Mer Lafferty uh, and Christiana Ellis, I think they're doing much much better in terms of keeping track of how many and who and under what circumstances and all of that and I think that gives them a much stronger place in terms of making a case to an agent or making a case to a publisher that yes in fact this this mode is making a difference uh, Scott Sigler has clearly convinced Crown that he has an audience and they're going to publish this chicken scissors work uh, <laughs> oh thanks <laughs> thanks for the reminder <laughs> yeah well it, it's you know I, I keep seeing people keep asking you know, what is what is it with the chicken scissors because if you know yeah. it, it's that you have to you have to know about the chicken scissors yeah yeah uh, so but it's a it's a strange book he i can't imagine that he would ever have managed to convince crown to publish it if he hadn't been able to convince crown that he had an audience built mm-hmm. just waiting for the book to be published yeah and he and he does he knows how many people download I don't. Well, I think again, I think you're exactly right, and I, I for one, really appreciate what what you and and Sigler and all the other uh, patio book authors out there have done. I mean, you know, you all have essentially, you know, taken a chance, and you know, uh, it's it's something that that I think ultimately will will benefit you and and, and all the other authors because, you know, tying this back into the whole open source philosophy. Um, you know, there there is something to be said for um, creating something, releasing it out to the wild, and just knowing that you know um, what goes around comes around, so to speak. And 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 it, and it will, as long as you're good at what you do, um, it, you will be rewarded in the long run. It's it, it's exactly it. It's it's yeah. You know, I'm. I, I'm I'm working ahead. Uh, I'm putting stuff out. I'm spending time. Uh, I I haven't. You know what I'm really out is 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 really just the time. I'm not out any. It doesn't cost me anything to speak of to mm-hmm. produce this stuff. It's all it's all you know s- spun out from my beady little brain and 50 years of reading science fiction. And the bottom line. Is that it's a heck of a lot of fun. So, gee, let's see. Do I want to do something that's a lot of fun? Okay, sure. Why not? <laughs> and oh yeah, if if anything comes up beyond that, well, fine. But in the meantime, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm I'm getting to talk to a lot of really fun people. I've got a lot of folks who seem to like what it is that I do, and at a meta level, at the upper level, if I get out of who I am and what I'm doing and look at it as a kind of precursor of what an internet-based economy might be like, I'm in it. The, the world is flat. Why, why does it have to be some kid in a village in India who's producing something and selling it on the internet? Why can't it be a uh, 55-year-old college professor in Colorado? <laughs> so the world is flat. If 
if in fact we are moving to the point where we're into the creativity culture, we're into the we're leaving the information age and entering the entertainment age, where the economy is going to be based on individual contributions. We're going to get back to a kind of craftsmanship, a kind of artisanship, a kind of artistry, for lack of a better term, where the value of an individual isn't in their credentials but in what they produce in a very real sense. Uh, I have no credentials to authorize me to write science fiction but I seem to be doing pretty well at it. I kind of wish I'd been able to start this about 40 years ago. <laughs> but my kids are 9 and 12, and they're talking about to me about what do I have to do in order to do a patio book. What's that going to be like when the next generation of authors expects that, well, of course I'm going to publish my stuff for free, and then we'll see what happens. It's going to be an interesting time. Uh, well, Nathan, I'd like to uh, thank you so much for taking the time, for staying up with me on a on a Sunday night, and and talking with me now for almost an almost an hour. I apologize for keeping you on so long. It's just been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chess, for having me. Okay, well, I would like to thank Nathan one more time for taking the time to speak with me. I had a blast. I really enjoyed speaking with him, and I enjoy his books, and I definitely encourage people to check him out. Links to all the information and the books will be in the show notes. All right, I think it's time to wrap it up for this week. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for listening and for downloading and for uh, participating in the forums, which you can go to at linuxreality.com slash forums and the IRC channel, uh, hash linuxreality on irc.freednode.net. Uh, thank you for all the great emails. I've got some listener tips and audio comments and things. I'm going to be doing a listener feedback episode here uh, pretty soon, so I'm going to get all that stuff in there uh, and keep that coming. I really do appreciate that. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you can send me an email to linuxreality at gmail.com. And uh, there, if you go to linuxreality.com slash contact, there are all the phone numbers there. If you want to call and leave a message or leave a voicemail or a listener tip or anything like that, you can use one of those phone numbers. And, of course, you can just record it on your own and send it to me uh, as an attachment to, uh, to an email. That would be fine, too. So. All right. Thanks again, everybody, uh, for your support. And, and, you know, like I said, the participation in the forums has been great stuff. And uh, please do check it out and consider registering if you haven't registered already. All right, everybody, I think that's going to do it. Y'all take care. Have a great week and a great weekend. And I'll catch you all next time. This has been Episode 93 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye-bye.